Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Dr. David Solomon Jalagel. You are most welcome, sir. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. David Jalagel is a researcher with the Prince Sultan Research Institute at King Saud University in Saudi Arabia. He holds a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies from the University of the Western Cape. Formerly, he was a lecturer in Islamic theology and legal theory at the Dal al Uloom in Cape Town, South Africa, where he graduated and then received the higher specialization in Islamic law and the higher specialization in Arabic. David will be speaking today about a controversial but important question. Did Islamic beliefs hold Muslims back from science? So it's a really important question. David, would you like to introduce us to this fascinating subject? Yes, thank you very much. Um, what spurred me to discuss this topic is reading Stephen Meyer's book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. It's not the major topic of his book, but one thing is, that is part of his clearly fascinating and well-written uh, introduction is a history of science and religion in Christian Europe and the different phases it went through. And that spurred me to respond to that issue with respect to Islamic theological positions and how it grounds or could, did ground uh, science. I found a particular interest, his discussion of the conditions under which science began to flourish and rapidly develop in Christian Europe. He explains that the key to that was escaping from the metaphysical assumptions of Aristotelian philosophy particularly its notion of logos and the idea that the logical structure of the natural world provided a necessary order that could be determined chiefly through rational reflection. He describes this as them making an overestimation of pure reason. They were too confident in what reason could tell you. And so they thought reason could tell them about the world and about God's relationship to it. They didn't have to explore further. Mm. He contrasted that with a return to creation ex nihilo, God creates everything uh, from nothing. And a completely volitional God, or God with absolute free will, who does what he pleases. And so when they returned to that in his narrative and left at the Aristotelian ideas, they saw the universe as being contingent on God's will, being not necessary, but everything is just possible. Whatever we see is something possible for God. And so because it's contingent on God's will, uh, they'd have to explore it. And Myers described this mm. as the recovery of the doctrine of creation. He calls it the recovery of the doctrine of creation. He says, with that, science began to take off in Christian Europe. Mm. According to this narrative, science was freed through emphasizing the contingency of creation. Contingency is possibility, that things don't have to be the way they are. God could have made it other than the way it was. Hmm. He didn't have to make the universe the way it was. Uh, Meyer's quotes where Robert Boyle said, it is not the job of the natural philosopher to deduce what God must have done, but instead to go and look and see what he did do. So just can I just interrupt, just clarify, when Robert Boyle, who, by the way, was, was English, um, but uh, na natural philosophers were what we would call scientists. This is just uh, the word science is a 19th century word. 
But before that, in the 16th century, the 17th century, what we were called scientists were called natural philosophers. So just that expression is, is just an archaic way of saying someone who is a scientist. Yes. So you see, that is a very interesting quote from Robert Boyle. Hmm. He said, it's not our job to look at what God must have done, like an Aristotelian, according yeah. to them, would have done, to use reason and deduction to determine what had to be the case, but in, to look at the world and see what God actually did do. Right. And now Myers continues. He says, this break with Greek thought meant a shift to a contingent order from a necessary order. And this was the primary factor that led to the acceleration of scientific enterprise in the West. This was, single, uh, this was signaled in the year 1277 when Etienne Tempier, the Bishop of Paris, writing with the support of Pope John Paul XXI, condemned necessitarian theology. And 219 separate theses introduced by Greek philosophy about what God could or could not do. This was further spurred on by the Protestant Reformation. These factors opened up a more empirical approach to science, a look-and-see approach. You want to learn something? Look at it and see what's going on. A historian of science, Ian Barbour, explains, and I quote, The doctrine of creation implies that the details of nature can be known only by observing them. That is what he said. And this was coupled with a belief that nature was intelligible because it was created by the rational mind of God. Therefore, human reason, as created by a rational mind of God, still had a vital role to play in ascertaining the truth. But that role was to be employed in empirical engagements with God's created world, with a look and see exploration of the world. Myers also identified the belief in the fallibility of human reason as people were subject to self-deception, flights of fancy, and prematurely jumping to conclusions. So that required verification mm. of the things that we just, uh, study and learn about. So he identifies all of these elements, as well as what he describes as a decentralization of religious authority brought on by the Protestant Reformation as an additional factor. If you have an actual singular central authority, it would be very easy to police thought. When that authority is dissipated and fragmented, then people can do things with a little bit more freedom of thought. Now, that is basically, after reading that, it struck me very deeply that these are precisely the conditions that prevailed in the Muslim world throughout most of its history. Necessitarian doctrines of a Greek theological bent had repeatedly been encountered and repeatedly rejected by mainstream Islamic theology. The prevailing orthodoxy has always been committed to a completely volitional God, a God of free will, the God, the one who does what he pleases. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. 
the completely volitional God and a completely contingent world order, which comes with the, with a completely volitional God, a God who can do whatever he wants. It means the world is only possible and it doesn't have to be the way it is. There's no necessity that the world has to be of a certain order and not of another order. Yeah. So this was mainstream Sunni Islamic theology throughout the history of Islamic theology. The same Sunni orthodoxy rejected the notion of clerical authority. There is no priest class in Sunni Islam. There's no priestly hierarchy. And even politically, the Muslim world maintained a highly decentralized form of government in its classical period. Even during the time of the caliphates, there was a lot of decentralized authority. Uh, local uh, rulers in the regional areas would have their own madrasas and schools and run um, with greater autonomy. In later uh, decades, in later centuries, that even became uh, more uh, more localized government. So that was the case. And religious authority was also very decentralized. Therefore, all the factors, every factor that uh, Myers describes were very much in evidence in the Muslim world. All the factors. Right. The first being the doc doctrine of God's complete volition. Again, uh, God is the doer of what he pleases. The second is a doctrine of the world's complete contingencies. Nothing has to be the way it is. Nothing has to be the way it is. So that means you have this, just know what happened in the world. If scripture is not telling you something that happened in the world, the only way you can learn about it is to look and see and see what actually is out there. Three, the doctrine that the world is no more than the manifestation of God's action. And since God's actions are free, they can only be known from scriptural revelation or through empirical observation and no other way. And we've talked about the seen and the unseen. Things like heaven and hell, they're creations of God, but they're not part of the natural world that we see. We believe in the one faith. Other things, we see them and we know that they're there. But we cannot know about what, ha what God has done in his creation except through scripture and through empirical observation. Uh, the fourth uh, element is the doctrine that God's actions in nature are wise and intelligible to human reason. And this means that we can understand God's created order. It's not totally erratic. It's something that we can engage with and understand. The obligation of engaging with reason for faith in this way was stressed not only by the ascendant Kalam traditions of the Asharites and the Maturidites, but also by the Taimian Salafism. Ibn Taymiyyah stressed the role of reason in knowing God and declared that sound reason and revelation can never be in conflict. He actually wrote a famous book called uh, Rejecting the Conflict Between Reason and Revelation. That's the name of the book. Which I'm, which I'm reading at the moment, by the way. But it's a different subject. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's a very stimulating subject. He also famously emphasized the role of natural causes and natural processes, which mm -hmm. I've discussed in an earlier uh, presentation. Ibn Taymiyyah's emphasis on natural causality. All Sunni uh, theologians also stressed, this is a fifth element, that reason has its limits. Importantly, humans can never encompass God's wisdom. We are prone to project our own limitations on God in ascertaining what could be wise for him. That is a great error. This means that we cannot presuppose what events and phenomena take place in the world because that is what we expect God to do. We cannot have our own expectations of what God should do and project them on the world. We actually have to look and see what happened in the world. And finally, as I mentioned, a highly decentralized religious authority 
which led to a decentralized control of religious knowledge, was typical of um, Muslim society throughout most of its history. So this describes the Muslim world. Right. And I would say it's even stronger, these elements are even stronger in, in, in the Muslim world than the way Myers described them in Christian Europe at the time that they overthrew necessitarianism. Indeed, the man most vilified by the modern imagination as an enemy of science in some popular discourse today was instrumental in defending the principles above. And he lived at a time of highly decentralized political and religious authority. This man uh, was uh, Imam al-Ghazali. And often he is used by some people, there's a narrative going around that because of his triumph over the Greek philosophers in his book, Tahafat al-Philosopher, or The Incoherence of the Philosophers, he mm -hmm. put an end to rational inquiry and put an end to the flowering of science. It's totally wrong because it doesn't even match up with historical events uh, that were going on at the time. But this is not just for Ghazali, it could be said for other Asherite and Maturidi theologians who lived before his time, as well as his contemporaries and his successors, like Al-Bazdui, Al-Razi, Al-Amidi, and Al-Nesafi. You could say this about all of them. These elements were clearly, uh, strongly the case for all of them. Moreover, Al-Ghazali himself warned that it is wrong for theologians to condemn scientific findings about the world. And that doing so is counterproductive. He says that himself twice in his Tahafut of Philosophy, his book, The Incoherence of the Philosophers. He says, we reject a lot of the philosophers' metaphysics and their theological positions on God. But we don't want to get involved in the scientific and mathematical arguments. That's not going to help us by yeah. trying to defeat scientific or mathematical claims. And they use the eclipse, for instance. That you can't say, when, when people will see that they can predict the eclipse, if you say that, well, this is against Islam, you're going to make people doubt religion, not doubt science. Hmm. So those are, that's Ghazali himself. It's not surprising that many of the great scientists in Islam, like the optician Ibn al-Haytham and the polymath Abu Rayhan Muhammad Ibn Ahmed al-Biruni, are generally understood to have been on the mainstream Sunni creed. This means that the same factors that Western historians of science identify as the factors for the flowering of science in the late medieval and post-medieval West were strongly in evidence within the mainstream Sunni Muslim orthodoxy from before that time, and moreover have stayed that way for the majority of Muslims up to the present day. Mm. So I found it fascinating reading Meyer's account of the role that church endorsement of necessitarianism and later repudiation of Aristotelian rationalism is seen to have played in the history of scientific advancement in Europe. Hmm. I found that fascinating that when they said that the Aristotelian thoughts was more predominant, it held back science. And when it was overthrown and returned to a volitional God and a contingent universe, science accelerated. Hmm. This is interesting to me because there's a narrative today in the Muslim world, a very common popular narrative, that the triumph of Sunni orthodoxy over Greek rational philosophy is the reason why Muslims supposedly ultimately lag behind Europe in the sciences. They blame the ascendancy of Asherism particularly, and its doctrine of God's free will, and the doctrine of the world's contingency, and the repudiation of philosophical rational necessitarianism as the reason for this uh, decline. Hmm. Pervez Hoodboy is one of these uh, people that advocate this idea, and he's a good example of this. He particularly vilifies uh, Al-Ghazali, and particularly vilifies his incoherence of the philosophers. 
which was a decisive work in repudiating much of the Greek-inspired necessitarian metaphysics. So it is really fascinating to see that scholars of the history of science in Europe, like Ian Barbour, Thomas F. Torrance, and Peter F. Hodgson, are presenting the opposite narrative, that Aristotelianism held Europe back from scientific progress and a return to a volitional free-willed God, a contingent universe within a doctrine of creation is what led to a flowering of science in Christian Europe. Hmm. It is particularly interesting to me, since I have long maintained, speaking from a purely theological background, not a historical background, that Sunni theology, with its volitional God and radically contingent world, is amicable to science, and not hostile at all, and that the rival necessitarian philosophical traditions pose more challenges and problems to the acceptance of science in the Muslim world. Okay, that's very, very interesting. But how do you explain then the decline of science in the Muslim world in contrast to what Dr. Stephen Myers refers to as the durability of science that he sees in the Christian West? Good question. This is a highly debated historical question, even as to the existence and the extent of that decline and what factors might explain it. Now, I am not a historian. So I can only talk from a theological angle. Hmm. And from a theological angle, what can be said with certainty is that the theological elements Western historians have now identified as crucial for the development of science in the Christian West were certainly most strongly present and dominant in the Muslim world throughout its history. Okay. Now, Dr. Stephen uh, Myers, uh, in his book, stresses how science in Christianity was used to strengthen faith, especially with the design and the teleological arguments. Was this the case for Muslims? To some extent. However, for Muslims, the argument from contingency itself became the paramount argument to prove the existence of God. And that right. followed from an argument of the uh, occurrence of the world. And that was the contingency argument became ultimately the strongest argument. This argument of contingency is to show that the universe does not have to be the way it is. It does not have to exist at all. It therefore needs God to determine that it exists and to determine it to be the way it is. Arguments from looking at the design in nature and in the teleology or the purposiveness of many things found in nature, like how the eye is foreseeing, and things show design with purposiveness. Mm. They're definitely uh, strongly evident in Muslim arguments for God, mm. but they serve a supporting role to the uh, primary argument of contingency. Right. And the main function of such arguments for Muslims was to reveal aspects of God's nature and his attributes, like his wisdom, mm. his mercy, and his perfection. So design arguments in particular were less crucial for Muslims in establishing God's existence itself. Mm. And they may have been more important for that purpose in Christian Europe. Mm. Okay. Now, in uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer's uh, book, there we have it, and I interviewed him uh, just a week ago, um, he notes in his book that the historian and philosopher Stephen Fuller of the University of Warwick here in, in Britain argued that the necessitarian thinking that prevailed in Europe in the Middle Ages owed, quote, less to Aristotle or Greek science generally, and more to the influence of Islamic scholarship on the interpretation of Aristotle and his works, came into currency in the Christian West during the 12th and 13th centuries. 
uh, end quote. If this is the case, how can it be said that the Muslims had the critical elements you described in their own thinking? That's interesting. And what Fuller said may very well be the case in Europe. However, even though peripatetic philosophy or Greek classical philosophy saw a development in the Muslim world, for sure, through philosophers like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd, who were known respectively in the West as Al-Faraibius, Avicenna, and Averos. Mm. Their views of those philosophers did not dominate in Orthodox Muslim theology, particularly for Sunni Muslims. Mm. That is especially the case for their necessitarian doctrines, which were strongly opposed by Muslim theologians. On the other hand, these same philosophers, particularly Ibn Rushd or Averos, were very influential in Europe. Yeah. Averos himself was the strongest advocate of Aristotelianism among the Muslim philosophers. He was a champion of Aristotle among the Muslim philosophers. And he had only a modest influence on the Muslim world. By contrast, in Europe, he was famous for his extensive commentaries on Aristotle. And a whole school of philosophy in Europe, known as Latin Averoism, mm. developed around his teachings. It was actually this philosophical tendency that seems to have been the primary target of the 1277 condemnation from the Catholic Church that Myers refers to. Mm. So I would say, yes, those philosophers may have been from the Muslim world, but their impact seems to have been stronger in Europe. And that's very interesting, getting that perspective. So in the, in the Muslim world, these, these uh, Muslim philosophers like Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd, as they're known in Arabic, their influence was much more marginal uh, in the Muslim world. And obviously, it, there was a sustained attack from people like Al-Ghazali in his incoherence in the philosophers and by Ibn Taymiyyah, of course, most famously, a little, little later on, and others. So that these weren't the, the, the major mainstream figures at all, that they were in the West much more and had a much bigger impact. So sitting here in the West, we have a slightly distorted impression. We think that what was the case here must have been the case much more so perhaps in the Muslim world, but that wasn't so. Uh, uh, the great titans of Islamic orthodoxy, the Sunni orthodoxy, as you say, Al-Ghazali particularly, but also Ibn Taymiyyah and others, were very, very critical of the necessitarian implications of Greek metaphysics that had been uh, infused into the thought of Ibn Sina, for example, Al-Farabi and, and Ibn Rushd, where so the creation somehow necessarily emanated from God. And God did, didn't exercise his will to create in the way the Quran obviously does say he, he did freely without any constraint or interior compulsion to create the universe. So um, in a sense, the Quran there was correcting um, the, the misunderstandings from Islamic point of view that these philosophers had uh, in importing Greek metaphysics into Islamic philosophy. So um, that's very interesting. It's not to say that the philosophers like Ibn Sina particularly didn't have an influence on Muslim thinking. It did. But mm. it's particularly the necessitarian doctrines and other uh, metaphysical doctrines were rejected by mainstream orthodoxy. They were not adopted. Mm. And mm. Ibn Rushd, particularly, his impact was extremely strong in the West and was very minor, unlike Ibn Sina in the East. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think we, we still await the deliberations of historians uh, and understand you're, you're a theologian, of course, uh, rather than a historian, um, to clarify perhaps um, the historical processes involved, not just the intellectual and theological and philosophical uh, factors involved in the differences between the West and uh, the Islamic world in, in and whether or not there were issues to do with um, any uh, other issues that retarded allegedly 
scientific development in the Muslim world or not. Uh, I mean, I think we, you know, if you learn anything from these subjects, we need to look again at the historical evidence very carefully rather than just go with um, received ideas about what must have been the case because some scholar yeah. said so 50 years ago in a book issued in Britain or something. You know, we need to look again carefully at the evidence. So it would be fascinating to hear um, in the future from people uh, a more objective account than hitherto for perhaps we have been uh, given in, in Britain or America or, or in Europe anyway. I would love to see that actually, especially taking into account the uh, theological issues I brought up when they engage with this. That yeah. would be very interesting to me. No, I, th- I think it's, it's a very healthy corrective. I thank you very much for that, for that David, uh, that, that uh, the, the mainstream Muslim Sunni world was not enthralled to some kind of uh, ideology that retarded, held back, or even denied uh, uh, the, the contingency of the universe uh, and the necessity in the sense that we must go and look and see, as you put it, to find out what God has actually done. And I'm glad that has been clarify by you because it's a very really important point so if there is an issue if there is a problem with uh the muslim world not advancing scientifically in the way that it might have done we know at least it's not to do with islam it's not to do with sunni orthodoxy it's not to do with islamic thought if there is an issue historians have yet to tell us perhaps then we need to look elsewhere if there are issues, but it's not to do with Islam. Islam remains uh, free of that accusation, indeed, provided the intellectual context or crucible by which people could go out and did go out and, and to investigate the world that God has made contingently. Um, so I think it's, it's a really important point, actually, you're making. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to present it. Great. Well, we'll leave it there because um, this is a pause here for further discussion. Um with historians who can perhaps shed more light on what actually happened, if there was a problem and what it, if, if, it, if there was, what were the causes, the historical causes, the cultural, whatever it was, maybe to do with colonialism, maybe to do with geopolitics, maybe to do with who knows, but this yeah. is a, there could be a variety of factors uh, involved in the, the difference between the, the, the Western European uh, experience and the, the Muslim experience in the, in the Muslim world. So thank you very much indeed, David, for your expertise and your time as always. Thank you. Thank you. Till next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.